0: This morning's message is on the fierce, cruel, and overwhelming wrath of God, and I do not feel adequate to preach the weightiness of this text. So I want to ask if you would join me in prayer just one more moment to ask for God's help. Almighty God, you have Given me a text today that is absolutely terrifying. And you know how many tears I've shed in just considering it before I even had to stand up here. But God, you also know that you led me to rejoice in this text, even through the difficulty. And I pray this morning, God, that you would do the same for everyone here. Lord, if there are people here who do not know you as their God, would you please open their ears this morning to hear what your word plainly says to us, that they might be saved from the horror of what is coming. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been studying the book of Isaiah together as a church. And today we arrive at chapters 13 and 14. If you have a church Bible, that is on page 333. For the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, and the Lord God has been reprimanding the people of Judah, his own people, showing them their sin and calling them back to himself that he might restore them. But, beginning in today's text this morning and extending all the way through chapter 27, the tone shifts. The Lord's judgment and his just punishments based on those judgments, will be poured out on the other nations of the earth, those who are not his people. And the result is horrifying. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 13 together. It'll be up on the screen or page 333 in the Church Bibles. The oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones, and I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast. At one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be as dark it will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures their ostriches will dwell and their wild goats will dance hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged what is happening here in this text is very plain verse 1 isaiah is delivering a message from god a vision of his coming judgment on babylon God is gathering an army. Verses three, four, five, and six each in turn say that God himself is personally gathering an army. And in verse 17, we're told that at least some of them were the Medes, a fierce people who would not stop and who could not be bribed. And for what purpose was God assembling this army? Verse three, to execute my anger, God says. Verse four, for battle. Verse 5, to destroy the whole land. Verse 9, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. This day, the day of the Lord, is coming, God says, and soon. Verse 6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. And verse 22, speaking of the land of Babylon, we see that its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Furthermore, there is no question as to the extent of the coming destruction. The land will become forever uninhabitable. Only wild animals will gather there. What was once a bustling metropolis will become a desolate, uncultivated wasteland with no sign of human life. For miles around, people will be more rare than gold. You'll find only empty streets and abandoned buildings and, at least for a time, carcasses. Dead bodies everywhere. And not just of men, of warriors dressed for battle, but of women, of children, of infants. Verse 15 tells us that some of these will be found thrust through by swords. Verse 18 tells us that others will be found pierced with arrows. And these were not mercy killings. Old and young alike, they were not quick and painless deaths. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that these people were terrified when it happened. They will be in agony, looking aghast at one another as they die. And verse 14 says that when any tried to escape, they were hunted down and slaughtered, even as they watched their own families killed before their eyes. Verse 9 summarizes all of this behold the day of the lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it how are we to understand the wrath of god in the bible how do we understand this purposeful Unapologetic and, in God's own words, cruel wrath that resu- results in the slaughter of men, women, and children that was so overwhelming that no one would ever live in these cities again. To answer that question, we have to first ask another question How are we to understand anything in the Bible? How do we read any text if we don't like what the text is telling us? I believe we have three options. Option number one is to twist it, to make it say something it's not saying. To make it say something we would prefer it said. I wish I could say up here this morning, like, does, does that word really mean wrath? Maybe in the Hebrew it means mildly irritated, and maybe this is all a metaphor that God is trying to say, it's, you're making life really difficult for yourself, guys. I wish you would just all get along better. Or perhaps we could say, this isn't really God talking because we know that God is love and God is peace and God died for our sins. And so this God is clearly not the God of the New Testament. This is something else. But no, friends, we mustn't twist the scriptures or downplay the words of the one true god that's exactly what the serpent did way back in the garden of eden with adam and eve he asked did god really say does not He actually mean something else so yeah we can twist the scriptures when we don't like it number two we can ignore it we can confess that yeah it's true because it's the bible but it's like that really weird relative that you have but you don't really talk about because it's kind of embarrassing. you know. So you're kind of hoping that the topic doesn't come up. And I think, if we're honest, this is where most of us sitting here this morning will tend to err if we're going to err. It's where we're going to be most tempted. We'll say, yes, we believe the Bible. It's the Word of God. But sometimes it's awkward and it's not comfortable to say that Jesus is the only way to God or that premarital sex is sin. Or that hell is a real place where unrepentant sinners exist in eternal conscious torment. Can't we just change the topic? Talk about something else? So we can twist the scriptures. We can ignore the scriptures. Or the third option is that we embrace the scriptures. We confess, confess freely that it's the word of God. Therefore, we do not sit in judgment over it. It sits in judgment over us. I may not understand God's word, but my understanding is not required for God's word to be true. And I may not appreciate God's word, but my appreciation is not required for God's word to be right. And I may not even approve of God's word, but my approval is not required for me to obey it. And it does not matter if that is offensive to us. It does not matter if this leaves us feeling misunderstood and undepreciated. Listen to me, friends. We are swimming in a culture altogether saturated with the assumption that each of us have the inalienable right to be heard and understood and affirmed and agreed with. But we do not. When you add that thought to the fact that all the condition of all men's hearts is innate inclination towards rebellion, towards dismissal of God's word, toward ignoring the clear commands and consequences that he has plainly laid out for us, we must be constantly vigilant to ask ourselves, who is in charge here? Who sits on the throne? Who is the judge? It's not me, and it's not you. Listen, I love country. I love America. I love the 4th of July, and I love the freedom we have. It is unprecedented in the history of all mankind, what we enjoy here in America, and I praise God for it. But, and I'm choosing my words here very carefully, our freedom be damned if we ever come to believe that our liberty somehow gives us the right to stand in judgment over God yes our freedom be damned in that case because if it is not we will be as proof of this I submit to you Babylon the great the glory of kingdoms the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans which is now like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them So back to our question. How are we to understand the Bible? And here's the answer with awe, with reverence. These are the decrees of the God of the universe, the great I am Himself. We are free to say, I do not understand. But we must follow that with Amen. It is good. And thus, we are now ready to answer the other question we asked. How are we to understand the wrath of God in the Bible? The answer may indeed be, I do not understand. But please join me in saying, Amen, it is good. Sometimes, that may be the only answer we can give. But, God, in his mercy and his wisdom, has sovereignly chosen to give us not only chapter 13, but chapter 14 as well today. And he's going to unveil a bit more for us than we deserve. Let me start with a story. A few years ago, there was a news story about a man who was sitting at home quietly with his family when suddenly, heavily armed foreign soldiers burst into the room and immediately shot him, killing him in front of his family. Chances are, your first reaction to that story is shock and horror. But when you learn that this man was Osama bin Laden the terrorist responsible for the death of thousands of innocent people, including hundreds of rescue workers and military personnel on September 11, 2001, your perception changes, doesn't it? In fact, when you heard that Bin Laden was killed by SEAL Team 6 on May 2nd, 2, 2011, you probably, like me, rejoiced and praised God for bringing justice and ending the reign of a mass murderer. And this next section of text, In chapter 14, God is likewise pulling back the curtain for us. As readers of this text, thousands of years later, it's hard for us to understand why God has promised to execute the wrath of chapter 13. But to the original audience, to Judah and all the Israelites who have been living under the reign of Babylon, this would have been very, very well understood. They would have heard these words and would have broken out into song. And in fact, that's exactly what verse 7 is going to tell us. So let's read and let's humbly and fearfully understand why the day of the Lord has come against Babylon. Chapter 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will be at- and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows and ruled the nation in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. Then they break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones, all who are the kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps the, and maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O daystar, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers. Lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. And will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord. Let's pause there. If we came into this chapter this morning wondering, why, God, why has the day of the Lord come upon the people of Babylon and destroyed it? We should wonder no more. For years, even generations, Babylon has oppressed the nations around them, including Israel. And yet, with the dawning of the day of the Lord, God's judgment has reversed the roles of the oppressed and the oppressor. Verse 2 says that they, Israel, will take captive those who were their captors. They will rule over those who had ruled over them. Babylon had wickedly ruled over Israel as slaveholders, but God, with overwhelming power and fury, here has snatched the whip from the hand of the oppressor and handed it to the slave. Then he unshackled the slave and put fetters on the slaveholder. By doing so, verse 3 tells us that God has given Israel rest from their pain and turmoil and the hard service, which, which they were made to serve. And the former slaves will then taunt the former kings. The oppressor has ceased. They're saying, look at you. Where's your fury now? And then in verses 5 and 6, God snatches away the staff and the scepter of the Babylonian king, which he had literally and figuratively used to beat his slaves in wrath with unceasing blows and unrelenting persecution. And God snaps it over his knee, while the king of Babylon cowers in terror before him. So great is the fall of this king that the the whole earth finds peace. The men in the trees alike sing for joy. And then we're given this picture of a company of dead kings who had themselves been overthrown and killed by the king of Babylon. And they mockingly welcome, welcome him to the grave where they are, where he himself had sent them. And they say, hi, welcome. We're so glad to see you. Hey, hey, we knew you were coming, so we prepared a bed for you. Made of maggots. And your covers, they're the finest we have here in Hades. They're made of worms, the finest worms, 300 count worms. They're really great. And they're saying to him, Welcome to eternity, brother. You've gotten what you deserve. This is the best it's ever going to get for you, and it will never, ever end. God's judgment reverses the roles of the oppressed and the oppressor. And then in verse 12, we come to a very interesting passage. I want to just pause for a moment to talk about this, because it is such a commonly misunderstood passage, I think. Historically, there are many who have taken the following verses and said that they are not about the king of Babylon, or at least not only about the king of Babylon, but they're actually speaking of the devil, about Satan himself. And there are several reasons why people say that, including its references to this individual of whom is being spoken about here as falling from heaven and his wanting to be like God, to sit on God's throne, but instead he's sent to the pit. Moreover, in verse 12, the words that the ESV translates as day star is the word, the Hebrew word "helael," which in Latin was rendered as the word lucifer. That word literally means shining one or light bringer, and commonly referred to the planet Venus, which was believed to be the brightest of the stars. You could see it even in the dawn. So you might ask, well, Tom, isn't, isn't Lucifer one of the names of the devil? So wouldn't it be right to assume this text is at least, metaphorically speaking, of Satan? Good question, but no. See, the word Lucifer only appears one time in the entire Bible, right here. And the reason we associate the word Lucifer with the devil is not because of the Bible. It's because, because uh, Dante uses it in the Inferno, and Milton uses it in Paradise Lost. But the Bible never makes that connection. And in fact, to make things a more confusing, some Christian tradition has used the name Morning Star to refer to Jesus. Because... He's a light bringer, right? Like, that that sounds metaphorically right. And if you know the, you know, for the older crowd here, if you know the 1981 hit song, Star of the Morning, that's what they're singing about. They're talking about Jesus, not Satan, in that song, in case you ever wondered. And and despite how common that this belief is, that this passage is referring to Satan, I, I just don't think the text lends itself to that interpretation. So it's it's possible, but I, I just don't think that we should land there. Because, see, Isaiah, writing the words that God commanded and possibly even conveying the sentiments of the dead kings whom whom the Babylonian king uh, had killed there, whoever's actually speaking in this particular section, they're right in the middle of mocking the Babylonian king. That much is clear. They're observing that he thought he was so great and he oppressed and slaughtered untold thousands. But look how far he has fallen. He had said in his heart, I'll ascend to heaven. I'll sit in God's seat. I'll be like him. But look, he's in Sheol, in the grave, in the place of the dead. It's as low as he can get. He's nothing. And he thought he outshone all the stars. But now the text says he's in absolute darkness. So, you know, he overthrew cities. He doesn't even have his own grave. Verse 19 says he's just like a body in the streets being trampled on. Why? Verse 20, he destroyed his own land. He slaughtered his own people. He was so bad, so corrupt, so wicked, so merciless that God commands in verse 21 that even his sons must be killed. Otherwise, they would rise up like their father and all this would happen all over again. It's like, you didn't like World War I? How about World War II? Did you learn your lesson yet? That's the kind of idea. So in response, verse 22, God rises up against them cutting off everything that Babylon had, its name, its remnant, its descendants, its posterity. There would be nothing left, nothing. And then he will sweep away whatever dust remains with the broom of destruction. And that's why when you meet international students here at Penn State University, they are from Japan and Italy and Russia and China, and India, and Iran, but no one, not a single person, will ever be from Babylon. All its glory is now just a pathetic pile of stone covered in sand where hyenas cry and jackals dwell. So it is when God's judgment reverses the role of the oppressed and the oppressor. So it is when the wrath of God comes upon a people on the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we turn to the last section of today's text and the final point on your outline. Having dealt with Babylon, the Lord now reveals His purposes for the whole earth. And he's going to begin with Assyria and Philistia. Join me in reading these last few verses, starting at verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. That is the purpose, that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts, has purpose, and who will annul it? his hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle, rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying fiery serpent, and the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety, but I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O Gade, cry aloud. O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion. In her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. In his judgment against Assyria and Philistia, we see that once again, God reverses the role of the oppressed and the oppressor. In verse 25... The Lord declares that the yoke of Assyria will depart and that the burden of Assyria will be removed. That is, its yoke and its burden formerly were used to break the will of the oppressed, but the Lord declares that he will instead break the Assyrians. Moreover, this judgment is altogether certain. There is no escaping from it. Listen, verse 24. As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. I love the epicness of that verse. What world ruler can say that? What government can say that? Who but the Lord himself can say that? As I have purposed, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And he goes on in verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, hovering over the nations, ready to utterly destroy them. Who would even dare try to turn it back? There's no one. Just As those whom Assyria had oppressed would have completely lost hope of being rescued, so shall Assyria itself be. And then in verse 28, God turns his attention to Philistia. The occasion for this particular oracle, it says, is that King Ahaz, who had reigned over Judah, died. And as any Sunday school student here would tell you, Philistia and Israel were not exactly friends. They were constantly warring with each other. And so it is likely, totally understandable, that the Philistia would have rejoiced in the death of their enemy's king. Yet, using the analogy of a brood of snakes, in verse 29, God warns Philistia that though one serpent, Ahaz, was no more, other serpents are coming, much, much bigger ones. It is the Lord is saying, if you thought that the snake of Ahaz was a problem, just wait, because a dragon is coming. A flying serpent, who will descend from the skies with fire. And while the root of Judah, it says, produces fierce dragons, verse 30 says that the root of Phil- Philistia will be killed by famine, such that even the remnants, any who survive what's happened so far, will be no more. Meanwhile, the poor of Judah will have an abundance, and their oppressed will lie down in safety. All this because God's judgment reverses the role of the oppressed, and the oppressor. That is the Lord's purpose for the whole earth. So, what are we here today to take away from this text of judgment? It is this. God's wrath is coming. Cruel and fierce, and there is no way to hide from it. This judgment came upon Babylon Assyria and Philistia and many, many more nations we're going to cover in the weeks to come. And the Bible is clear that this same judgment, this day of the Lord, God's wrath upon sin is coming again to all people when Jesus Christ returns. Judgment will pour out on the oppressor and freedom will be given to the oppressed. Now, God's patience means that this will not happen immediately. It has not happened yet. But it will happen, certainly. The clock is ticking, and the Bible is clear that we are in the 11th hour. And whether this is wonderful news or terrifying news for us this morning depends on whether each of us are the oppressed or the oppressor. And many of us here have been oppressed. We have been treated unjustly by nations or governments or or societies or workplaces or churches or families or individuals. It is certainly true. Have you, sitting here, ever been physically, emotionally, or sexually abused? That's oppression, and God hates it. Have you experienced the shame of racism, either personally or systemically? If so, that's oppression, and God hates it. Have you experienced sexism, ageism, classism, anti-Semitism, or any other isms that make you feel as though you are less than you are. If so, that's oppression, and God hates it. Have you here today carried yokes like that? Have you felt their burdens? If so, friends, take heart, because a day is coming when the whole earth will be at rest and quiet, so that then you can break forth and to singing, all be made right. Listen, we should rightly lament the lack of justice we have seen thus far. But justice is coming. The Lord will leave no scale unbalanced, no wrong unpunished, no oppressor in power on that day. And and even when we listen now to news Uh, and the world reports and things like that, and and, and we, we see oppressors reigning and oppressing and destroying and killing and terrifying people, we needn't fear. Not because there are not terrifying things happening, but because someone far more terrifying is on his way. He's coming in fury, and he will completely reverse the roles of the oppressed and the oppressor. However, we should be slow to rejoice in that truth until we've examined our own hearts. Because many of us have also served as the oppressor. Consider a few questions with me. Have you moved away from others relationally because of their skin, or speech, or gender, or body shape, or personality, or disability, or economic status? To my shame, I have. Have you exploited others' weaknesses so as to promote yourself? Have you gossiped about others such that they sounded wrong while you sounded noble? That, again, is one of the tactics that the enemy himself used in the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. He made himself sound right and God sound wrong. Have you demanded that others lay down their lives and preferences so that your life would be more comfortable? Be warned, friends, if any of those things are true, then you are guilty of oppression. And if you are guilty of any of these things, today's text is a warning to you. The day of the Lord is coming, and you may be without excuse. Because on that day, every oppressor will be brought low. And I think, if we're honest, all of us are guilty of that. So what can we do? We hide in the refuge that God himself has provided. We sang about it this morning. We hide in Jesus Christ, God's own son. Though Jesus reigns above all and always has, he did not oppress a single soul even once for even a moment. And though Jesus reigns above all, he was oppressed by men treated shamefully, beaten, scorned, and hung on a Roman cross. And on that cross, he bore the full weight of God's fury against the oppressor. And because of that, the flawless forgiveness of the Father is fully available to us all who would call upon the name of Christ. That's why we gather together as a church. That's why we are Christians. That's why we sing. So have you sought out that safety? Every one of you here this morning, do you know That's safety. Is Jesus Christ your refuge? If not, he can be. In fact, he must be. Because, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So God's judgment is coming for sinners like us. And our only hope is Christ. So please, if you don't know him this morning, run to him. Find your refuge in him. May we all be found in him on that day. Please join me in prayer. God, this day is coming. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. And we see what happens in this text when that day comes. Help us, Lord, to not be as Babylon, which no one will ever dwell in again. No one here is from there. No one will ever be from there. If it weren't for this text, we wouldn't even be talking about it. We wouldn't care about it at all. God, we pray that you would spare us from that in Christ. He took on what was not his to bear. He took all of our shame, all of our sin, all of the times when we have been the oppressor, and he made himself as though he were guilty so that we could be set free. God, this morning in our last song here, would you help us to remember where we stand and where we can stand in Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.